0: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 16, probably the most popular, most often quoted scripture in the entire Bible. We see it on posters, on billboards, on bumper stickers, t-shirts. God loves the world that's a great summation of the gospel of the good news of of Jesus that God loves but sometimes and maybe this is just me but but sometimes we get the sense that that God loves us the same way that like I love hot sauce that that like you know it, it's 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 great but it's just this Side condiment. Now, now, I love, I love hot sauce as much as you can love any condiment that is that is out there. I love a little splash on it to add some flavor, a little bit of heat. If I order a dish out to eat and it already has salsa or hot sauce on it, I ask for extra because I kind of like to sweat when I'm eating a little bit. Um, but maybe for you, it's not hot sauce. Maybe it's, it's ketchup or mustard or barbecue or ranch dressing or, or something like that. But I, I, I love it. But it is it is optional. And I'm glad that somebody created hot sauce and all its many varieties. But but if we didn't have it in the world, my life would still be okay, maybe a little less flavorful, but but I would be fine. And sometimes I feel like we we talk about this love of God in in such a, a vague way that it just sounds like it's this optional side condiment to the dish of life so back to John 3:16 God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. And then watch what happens next. God didn't, did not send his son into the world to judge or condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, verse 17 is, you know, less people have that one memorized, but it actually defines What kind of love God has for the whole world, that it's it's actually a love that is that is for us. It's it's a love that isn't just aloof and abstract, but it's active and engaged in all of our lives. God is working the best for all of us not to condemn or to judge, but to release. This love looks like saving, not condemning. But saving, releasing, we're going to talk about that in a moment. But when you've heard people talk about God before, did they talk clearly and compellingly about the God who is for us? Not just the God who who is with us, not just the God who loves us, but the God who is actually for us. The God who loves us in such a way that God actually wants the best for all of humanity And do you believe that God is actually for you? Do do you believe that, that God's desire for you is to actually flourish and thrive and shine? That that's that's the good news, that's that's the gospel. Last week, we talked about God with us, and today we're going to talk about this second simple word of this simple gospel, the word for, the good news that God is for us. Now, this is very simple. It's, it's very straightforward, but, but for many, the, the for of Jesus's good news has been buried underneath a pile of against that, that somehow somewhere in in all of these years of religious againstness, we have lost this profound and beautiful life changing message of God being for us, and instead, we think God is against us and, and you know this this Christmas story. The, the Christmas story that, that we're all so familiar with and we see little nativity scenes and in, in our neighbors front yards and over all of these shops. It, it's a story that's actually deeply subversive. That God comes into our world just under the radar, giving us a picture of a God who who is not distant or detached or indifferent to our pain or uninterested in our conditions of life or uninvolved in the very real struggles that we all experience in this world. But instead, God is here with us. In Jesus to help us, to suffer with us, to give us hope because this God is for us. And God is so for you that God has moved heaven and earth just to meet you. That's gospel. That's the good news. And so to talk about this gospel good news, I need to talk about water sports yeah water sports, you know like water skiing, wakeboarding, kneeboarding, all all of that stuff. I grew up uh, close to here, just just south of here on the west coast of Florida, and we had uh, this place where I lived uh, called Ski Alley. It was an alley where you could ski it 's a pretty descriptive name, um, <clears throat> and whenever my friends would invite me out onto you know their parents boat or whatever i, I didn 't really enjoy it because. I wasn't very good at water sports. Now, I was very good at skateboarding, rollerblading, biking, all the things that, you know, I had to make things happen, but water sports was something totally different. Because if if you've ever done it before, water skied or anything like that, and you remember your first time, you're out there in the water, life jacket on, floating, holding on to this 80-foot rope, and the people in the boat yell this advice to you, and they say just relax. Let the boat pull you up. Okay. That's, that's what you're supposed to do. Float there. Let the boat pull you up. And, and when they say that they say it like it's the most sensible thing imaginable, but for somebody who has never wakeboarded or or water skied before and, and is used to things like skateboarding, making things happen, it sounds like complete nonsense. Okay, it's like lean back to go forward, stay down to get up on the water. And if you pull yourself, try to pull yourself up against the rope, then you will inevitably, certainly fall right over and start chugging water as the boat just drags you along, which has happened to me numerous times. Let the boat pull you up. it goes against our, our natural inclination to try to get ourselves up onto the surface of the water. And, and it never works because whenever you start to pull yourself up, get yourself up on your own, it's, it's totally impossible. And this gets to the heart of Jesus's message and and what he teaches in this counterintuitive gospel, this, this unexpected foreign idea that cuts against so many ways that we think that the world ought to operate. I mean, think about it. Think about uh, Jesus's most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, blessed. Remember who he says the people are blessed or blessed. If you're one of those King James Christians, blessed are the poor, Blessed are the hungry blessed are, are the meek blessed are those who mourn. It, it's all about blessing. Those who are lacking blessing. Those who, who did not have it all together. Those who are acutely aware that they do not measure up the nobodies, the, the pathetic, the lame, the, the not good enoughs. Jesus says, blessed. You're blessed by God. And that word blessed, it it means kind of essentially God is on your side. God is with you. God is for you. Blessed God is on your side. And when Jesus says blessed are those people, those are the kinds of people that God blesses. Those are the kind of people who God is on their side. It's just plain frustrating, to the way that we think that our world ought to work. It's frustrating to the idea of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Put your big boy pants on. Suck it up, buttercup. It goes against all of that. Instead, God says, relax, blessed. Let the boat pull you up. Don't try to pull yourself up. There are no Christian merit badges. Relax, Let me give you, let me give you. And that's the good news that that in our moments of our greatest despair, our, our greatest failure, our greatest sin, our greatest wandering and helplessness and frustration, God meets you there, right there, right? Exactly there in that place and announces, I'm on your side, blessed. I am for you. The the good news, the gospel insists that God does not wait for us to pull ourselves up. God does not wait for us to polish ourselves up. God does not wait for us until we're all primed, primed and proper until God will come and meet with us. No, God comes to meet us and blesses us while we are in the middle of the mess that we have created for ourselves. Gospel isn't getting it all together so that we can have God's blessing. Gospel is us finding God exactly in that moment of our greatest not togetherness. Gospel is grace, gospel is gift. And you don't earn a gift, you receive it, you don't make it happen. You wake up to what has already happened to you. Gospel is your eyes being open to your own unworthiness and Jesus's insistence that that was never supposed to be that the way that it worked to begin with. And so, listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter eight. Paul says this. He says, "So now there isn't any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." Now the problem that we have with with a, a statement like that, and the idea that God is for us, is is that we are so familiar with our own failures. But we know them all too well, and and we might say in our hearts, "Okay, God might be for people, some people, but not me," because because I. I know what I've done. I've done too much wrong. I've made too many mistakes. I've made too many poor choices throughout my life. I can't really believe that God is for me because God knows all about me. Paul says there is now no condemnation. That word condemnation, it's, it's courtroom talk. It's, it's essentially two words that are kind of put together. It's handed down sentence. So a sentence that is handed down to someone. And, and Paul has been writing for the first seven chapters of the book of Romans that, that there is a sentence. That, that we have all sinned. We, we have all fallen short of God's glory. There is a sentence. We are all judged. We all have made mistakes. We've all messed up. We all have our hang-ups and our bad habits. We've all been put on trial and we have all been found guilty, guilty of sin, guilty of falling short, found guilty of, of not loving our neighbors, found guilty of not only not loving our neighbors, but actually harming our neighbors. And Lord knows there's plenty of witnesses who can testify against us. The enemy testifies against us, giving us evidence of how we have fallen short. Our neighbors, our friends, our family, they can all testify against us of, of how we have not loved them the way that we ought to love them. We've even testified against our own selves. We don't even live up to our own standards that we set for ourselves, let alone God's standards. I mean, we know when, when we get honest with ourselves and we look in the mirror, we, we know that, that we're not all together. But we know that we're not all polished up and primmed and proper. The jury is out. They've deliberated. And the verdict is clear. But the good news is that the sentence is not handed down to us. That's what Paul says here. There there is a sentence, but the good news is that it is not handed down to you. Instead, it is handed down to Jesus who is standing in your place, that he takes our place. And what makes this good news so good is that we know that we are not so good. What makes the good news so good is knowing that that we are not good. So good. We all know that our accuser has plenty of key witnesses to testify against us. What makes the good news so good is is that in those moments where we know that we are not so good, those moments of our greatest despair and failure and sin and weakness and losing and failing and frustration and wandering and helplessness and hopelessness and falling short, Jesus meets us right there and there. There is no condemnation. The sentence that we should have passed down to us has been handed to Jesus in our place. And so Paul says, okay, so what do we do with this? What, what, are, what are we to say about all of this? This is the good news, but, but how do we even try to explain it? Look at what he says. This is uh, skipping down a few verses. Verse 31. So what are we going to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Doesn't it make all the difference in the world to know that someone is actually for you? That somebody is actually on your side, cheering for you, advocating for you? It says here, now, if God is for us, and this can trip trip us up here, but, but in the Greek, this is not a conditional If the, if in this case doesn't mean that, that God's God being for you is a possibility. Instead, it's a certainty. This, this, if isn't about the possibility of God's love for us. It's about the certainty of God's love for each and every one of us. It's not like if pigs fly, but it's instead, it's like, if the sun rises tomorrow, which is certain. So he says, if God is for us, who is against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up freely for us all. Won't he also freely give us all things with him who will bring a charge against God's elect people? Is it God who acquits them? Who is going to convict them? All this courtroom language. It is It is Christ Jesus who died even more, who was raised and who is at God's right side. It is Christ Jesus who also pleads our case for us. Pause for a second. And savor every word of that. God is for you. And so who? Who will separate us from Christ's love? Will we be separated by trouble or distress or harassment or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written. We are being put to death all day long for your sake. We are treated like sheep for the slaughter. The the sentence is, is clear. The verdict is clear. The outcome should be certain. But, but in all these things, in all of this nakedness and famine and distress, in all of these things, we win a sweeping victory through the one who loved us. I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things, not powers or height or depth or any other thing that is created. Your family may have turned their back on you. Your, your child may have disappointed you. Your job may have disappeared in the thin air of layoffs and cutbacks, but the maker of the mountains is for you. The one who laid the floor of the ocean is for you. The one who scattered a, a hundred billion stars across a hundred billion galaxies that spans 30 million plus light years with the playful toss of a hand is for you, doesn't that just take your breath away for a second? That God is for you, not, not was for you, not will be or might be, but is right now for you. There, there is no waiting. There is no probationary period. There is no waiting through all the fine print right now. God is for you. That God's availability to you is not dependent upon whether or not you have been good or bad. God is not some Santa Claus deity checking the list twice, frowning about what you did last week. No, God is for you right here, right now. And if we just pause to catch our breath, we'll find it. In Jesus's insistence that God was for everybody. Jesus challenged the conventional wisdom of the day that thought that God was only for some people. When Jesus stood in solidarity with the poor of the world, he confronted the systems that created those kinds of conditions. When, when Jesus argued that there's no way that God could possibly be contained in one little temple, he provoked those that controlled and profited from that temple. All of that led to his arrest, his trial, and his execution on a cross. You can't bring a fresh word of human flourishing to an old established system of oppression and expect it to just stand by passively. Or as Jesus said, you can't put new wine into old wineskins. See, God is so for us that God in Jesus Christ was willing to take on the world and all that the world brings it and suffer with it, absorb it, feel it right down to the very last breath. And then to rise and create something brand new. That's what it means that God is for us. Jesus showed this to his disciples the night before he went to the cross where he sat around a table and he took simple elements, bread and cup. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is poured out for You. And so in just a moment, we're, we're going to experience that experience God's God's love given for us, God's love with us. And so, um, if, if you're watching online, I, I hope that uh, you have your communion elements ready, some bread, some uh, juice or water, whatever it might be. Uh, if you're here in the room, I hope that you got those communion elements, um, on your way in and we're, we're gonna. Um, take a moment just to to pause, uh, prepare our hearts for this time that we come to the Lord's table together. And I hope that in this moment, this just brief moment that we pause, I hope that you would ask the Holy Spirit to come with you, that you would know that God is for you in such a profound and deep, deep way. So Lord, come, we invite you into the space, into our hearts. God, help us to search our own hearts that we would know that you are for us. Help us to prepare for your coming into our heart. Amen.